0: As most of you know, we've been looking at Mark chapter 8 through 10 over the past couple of months, and we are actually nearing the end of this series. Next week will be our last time to be in in these texts, in this series. And the wonderful thing about this section of Scripture is that it enables us to see quite clearly the central components of God's kingdom. It brings us right to the center. Blindness and partial understanding. These are the things that Jesus is working against in these chapters in the life of his disciples. And they are as much a problem to us today as they were to his disciples back then. He wants his disciples to see, he wants us to see and to see quite clearly the true nature of his vocation as the king, the coming king. And then from that to understand what our own lives are to look like as a result. So what his kingship actually means for us and the manner of his kingship. And so we get to do this again tonight. We get to come to themes that are familiar in chapter ten, verses thirty-two through forty-five, and we get to peer into the center of things—the center of His kingdom. Now, up to this point in uh, in His exchange here and His intensive teaching program with His disciples that started at the end of chapter eight, Jesus has twice revealed to His disciples that He must suffer and die. And he does so for the third time in our passage tonight in verses 33 and 34. As they start to head out to Jerusalem, mind you, the kingly, the royal city, the city of David, the city where if his disciples had a false hope, this was surely when it was going to become a reality. And so he says again that the Son of Man will be delivered over into the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles And then he gets even more graphic than he's been before. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And yet, as with the previous two times that Jesus makes this clear statement... ...remember in chapter 8 it says that he said this to them plainly. The disciples seem to miss the point once again. They're scheming for glory and for greatness and they're hanging on to Jesus... For the satisfaction of their own worldly ambitions. Earlier in chapter 9 they had argued over who was the greatest. And Jesus listened in on that argument. And we see that same disease in this text in verse 37. Where James and John come up to Jesus and they say grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They want to be in these places of the highest seats of honor and glory in Jesus's coming kingdom. And then we're told in verse 41 that the other 10 who weren't part of that conversation, but probably overheard it, began to be indignant. And then it's at this point that Jesus actually calls them to something quite different. Once again, this pattern has worked itself out twice before, and here we see it for a third time. And he reveals the purpose of his coming and the radical nature of his kingdom, what he came to bring. It's a kingdom that clashes at every point with the kingdoms of this world and with the standard ways of life, ...that we're told to follow in this world. We're going to deal with three things in this passage. First, what Jesus came to do and how he would do it. Second, what this means for those who would be his followers. And then thirdly, and in closing, what this, why this demands everything. We'll address why this demands everything. So first, what Jesus came to do and how he would do it. So while Jesus had told his disciples that he would suffer and die... ...and that this was a part of what he had come to do... It's not until verse 45 of chapter 10 that he actually tells them why. He just tells them that it will happen. The son of man will go and he will die. But he doesn't explain why until we get to this point. And so here he unfolds in a succinct and surprising way. The answer to the question why he will die. In these words that are probably some of the most well-known from Mark's gospel. He says for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What does this mean? It means that his death on the cross that was going to happen very soon... ...would not be the failure that his disciples feared that it would be. And as some modern interpreters of the New Testament have said that it was... ...it wouldn't in fact represent a change in his mission. A movement from plan A which didn't quite work out to plan B... ...which was going and dying on a cross... It wasn't a deviation because things didn't work out as Jesus had intended them to. No, what we see here and what Jesus has been trying to get across to his disciples over the last three chapters... ...is that he came to die. That this wasn't just some kind of extra thing. But this was the heart of his mission. From the beginning, this is the reason that he came. And his death would be the springboard. The launching pad... The enabling reality, quote, for many, in verse 45. For many to enter life. This is what he came to do. This is the king's plan. Now one background for this vocation as the king who came to die is found in the suffering servant of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. We read earlier from Isaiah 53, these powerful words that in the words of one commentator, the heart of these words is to present the servant of Yahweh, the servant in these passages, as the one who suffers and dies for the redemption of his people, whose life is offered as a substitute for their guilt. It's quite clear that Jesus is seeing his own vocation as the Son of Man, as the King, who's come as the Messiah, in light of these words from Isaiah 53, as the one who's come to suffer and to die on behalf of his people, as a substitute for their guilt. Now it's important to elaborate on an on a word that we find in verse 45: this word ransom. For the Son of, of Man came not to serve, but to be not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This word is usually is used repeatedly in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, to talk about God's rescue of Israel from slavery and also about their rescue from spiritual oppression. It's a word about rescue. And it's often used as a payment, a a word for, as a payment for a life that is legally forfeited or under or subject to divine punishment. The basic meaning of ransom is deliverance by payment of an equivalent. Deliverance by payment of an equivalent. This doesn't suit us well because our conception of ransom is confused. We think of ransom with some kind of Mel Gibson movie as the price that a criminal would pay, would put Upon the heads of his or her hostages. So the bad guy is the guy who sets the ransom. That's the way it works for us. But that's not the biblical background for this concept or this word. In the scriptures a ransom is an act of mercy. That's given by the one who has been offended. So let's take an everyday example from our lives. When an ox that has a history of goring people. (laughs) Gores someone's wife. This is out of Exodus 21. In that case, the owner, or, or sorry, the, the husband of the wife who was killed, the surviving husband, has the right to set a ransom for the owner of the ox. Now, because the ox has a history of goring people and the man didn't take care of it, the, the penalty for this, uh, this fowl is death in Exodus 21. So follow me here. So the husband who lost his wife, instead of seeing this man come to death, the owner of the ox, can set a ransom, which this man who's guilty can pay out and be freed from the penalty of his sin and not subject to the extremity of the law. So from the perspective of the one who's been offended, from the man who's lost his wife, to set a ransom is a tremendous act of mercy. To not mete out the full letter of the law, but to give this man freedom to make payment and to step out of the guilt and the penalty for which he, for under which he duly finds himself, justly finds himself as the owner of this ox. It's an act of mercy. And that's the background for ransom in the New Testament. Only it gets even more extreme and more merciful and more wonderful as we think about all that God has done in Jesus for us. Because in this case, it's the offended party Who actually comes and pays the ransom. It's not the one who offended. But God in the person of his son. Sends his son to come and make the ransom payment himself. Not only is the act that there is a ransom an act of mercy. But the fact that God would be the one who would come. And this is what Isaiah 53 is all about. That that God has come to pay the ransom. And that's what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus. This, he says, is why he came. The purpose of his life, the purpose of his ministry, the purpose of his being sent into the world is to bring freedom and new life and rescue to all of those on earth, all of those in God's good creation who are held in the bondage of sin and death and futility in their lives. And Jesus came to vanquish the enemies of God to rescue humanity and all of creation from that bondage and that suffering and that futility. And how did he do this? That was why he came. Well, how did he do this? Verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did it by dying. By the cross. Not by being served, but by serving us in a way that no one else in history could serve us. In a way that no one else was ever positioned so powerfully to serve us. That's what Jesus came to do. That's the center of his ministry. And that's verse 45 in a nutshell. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the king to come and to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for you and for me. So let me just stop here and say, some of you might be thinking in your life, man, how could God ever love me? How could God ever care about somebody like me? How in the world could God, the God who's made everything, care? How could He think this way about me? Surely I'm too done for. Surely I'm too used up. Surely I've made too many mistakes in my life. Surely I've gone down the wrong path for too long that God, He couldn't love me. I've heard that from so many people over the years. It's something that we wrestle with and it's something that we feel. And if that describes you tonight, then I want you to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this word from Jesus in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, includes you. You're part of the many that he came for. You're part of the many that he gave up his life for, that expresses the depth of his love for. And his cross, the cross that we celebrate that's at the center Of our life together. It's actually at the center of our name too as a church. But That's another story. It's at the center of our life. That cross says to you that you are beloved. That no matter what you've done. No matter where you've been. No matter where you are right now. That God couldn't love you any more than he already loves you. And the church is to be the place that lives in the radiance. And the life and the blessing and the peace. That that love brings for you and for me. Do you know that love? Do you feel that love? Maybe you've known that love for a long time, but maybe you haven't felt that love for a long time. Or maybe you've come into this place just beginning to ask questions about God, having lived life maybe relatively well on your own terms and doing life in your own way and yet finding it to be a little bit lacking and starting to wonder, is there more out there? Well, then let this message of verse 45 say to you, yes, there's more. And yeah, you're right to start searching after it. But man, it's far, far better than you ever thought it was. Because at the center of what the truth is, is a God who gave himself for you. A God who welcomes you and embraces you. And who's saying to you right now, come home. Come back. Come and have life. This is the kingdom. This is what Jesus came to do. To set us free, to give us life. And he did it by the cross. Now secondly, what does this mean for you and for me who would be his followers? I've noted already that first the ramifications of Jesus' death for us are freedom and life and forgiveness and love like we never dreamed we could have. And that has to be said first and foremost as the first thing, the huge thing, the thing that counts above everything else. Is that if you stand in God's kingdom. You do so because Jesus has made a way by the depth of his grace and his mercy and his love for you. He's paid the ransom. And you can't add anything to what he's done. As he says in John's gospel on the cross. It is finished. Nothing that you bring. Nothing that you can offer. Nothing can add to the finality and the completion of the work. The redeeming love and the work of God on the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing add to that so the first ramification of, the, of of this message of mark 10 is that we receive this ransom by faith and freely and that because of his love we're free and alive and cleansed and whole and if you don't know that if we don't know that deeply in our hearts then the second ramification of this which is really the central thrust of this text Is very hard for us to hear and to live into. So know that first and foremost it's from a posture of joy and of hope and of thanksgiving. In light of the love of the Lord of the universe who reigns over everything right now. In our lives that we go forward. But then secondly the cross at the center of Jesus's life. At the center of the purpose for which he came and of God's kingdom. The cross means this second thing that we see in his interaction with his disciples in verses 35 to 45. And what Jesus is saying essentially as he interacts with James and John and then the ten who get indignant at their request. Is he saying that this, this cross that was your means of entrance into the kingdom. My death which allows you to have life is actually now not just the means by which you enter, but it's the way by which you walk into life in the kingdom. It's not just the gate that you come through, but it's the road upon which you travel. This cross of Jesus' self-sacrificial love is the manner of life for all who would be his disciples, all who would enter. And what we see is this, this way of life clashes Uh, powerfully, we've seen this over the whole series, with the way of the kingdoms of this world. In James's and John's maneuvering for glory, Jesus sees something akin to to, to the way that the world exercises authority and power. And he says to him, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and exercise authority over them. Everybody in the world around you is trying to get to the top. They're trying to get to the place where they have more and more people under them to do their bidding. Where they can be more and more significant. More and more important. And James and what he sees in James and John. Is he sees that same sickness. Manifesting itself in their request. To be at his right and it is left in glory. They want to be proud. They're full of themselves. Concerned for their own needs. Puffed up by the, the service of others. That's where they want to be. And he's saying James and John. That's what you're buying into by your request. It's what everybody else says is going to bring you life. But in the opening phrase of verse 43, Jesus cuts through all of that by saying this. He says, but it shall not be so among you. This way that's so common in the world shall not be so among you. That may be the way that the world seeks life, but that's not the way of my kingdom." Instead, Jesus says that greatness in his kingdom is to be found in those who are servants and slaves of all. And we've encountered this before in these passages from Mark's gospel. But here, something new comes about. And it's this, that the explicit connection to Jesus' life and purpose is made much more clear, much more explicit. In a sense, Jesus says, you must be a slave and a servant in this world because I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The cross is not just your means for entry into my kingdom, but it, it, but as the embodiment of self-sacrificial service, the cross is the ongoing way of life for you in my kingdom. And it's also, interestingly, the way to future glory, which is actually, actually, after all, what James and John came looking after. Can we sit at your right and can we sit at your left? And Jesus says, look, that's not for me to grant. But in the process of answering that question, he says something to them very powerful and very sobering. He says, can you drink the cup that I have to drink? can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? These are references to the sorrow and suffering of the cross that Jesus was about to take up. And we shouldn't lose the irony in Mark's gospel of this request either. For if we read on a couple of chapters ahead, who is at the right and the left of Jesus in his kingly glory on the cross? The places at the right and the left of Jesus are the places of the cross. As Jesus is crucified between two men also being crucified. This kingdom inaugurated by the cross has no place for the way of the life of the world within it. Instead it contains the power, the kingdom contains the power to set you and me free from this life pursuit in the world. To emulate our king in true life on our way to true glory by being a slave to all. So, those who have been loved by God, forgiven by God, reconciled by God, and made new by God are now free to be a slave even of their enemies, not to mention their families, their spouses, their friends, their neighbors, the strangers that they encounter on the street or in the tea. Why? Why are they free to live this way? Because they're not trying to make a life of their own anymore. They've received life in the full, in fullest. And it's better and more wonderful than anything that this world has to offer to us. And now Jesus calls them to live out this life in a manner consistent with the very act by which he gave it to us. By dying to self, by taking up our cross, and by becoming slaves to all. And we can do this, you and I. Those of us who have come to Jesus and have been redeemed by his love, we can do this because Jesus is the Lord of the whole world who is reconciling all things to himself and making all things new. And if you were in Essentials, that sounds familiar from this weekend. I've spent a large portion of the last three days of my life with people talking about this beautiful gospel that is so big and wonderful and powerful that it changes everything about us and what we're called to do. And it's actually been a wonderfully encouraging few days of digging in to the realities that Jesus is not somebody in the past, not just somebody in the future, but he's a present reigning king who's Lord over all things right now. And you and I, if we've been recipients of this love of his life given for us on the cross, you and I are on the inside. Of the amazing work of reconciliation and renewal that God is doing through Jesus, the true Lord. Throughout all of history and every place on the corner of the globe. He's begun it with us. He's working this out. This means of renewal through the self-sacrificial love of the cross. And Jesus started this in his own death. And of course there are aspects of his renewing, reconciling love. That are unique and non-repeatable. Such as it's saving efficacy for people like us. And it's ability to bring about the forgiveness of sins. But there's a deep logic here in the kingdom. That as the king of the kingdom. He calls all who enter into this new living life. By the cross. To then take up the cross. And as we take up the cross as God's people. This is the God ordained means. By which the power and love of his non repeatable death and resurrection to continue to spread throughout the globe as we, his body, take the lower place, as we serve those in need. This has been a theme for us this fall at Church of the Cross of serving the poor. The reason we want to serve the poor of the city of Boston is because this, above all things, reflects the reality of the cross. By which we've entered into life. And now which we're called to imitate. So that life might be spread to more and to more in God's world. foregoing selfish ambition. Pursuing the true glory of God. In the kingdom of God. And awaiting the consummation of this life and glory when Jesus comes again. Despite the fact that many have tried, it's as simple as this no one can take up the cross as a means of new life, as an entrance to new life, who does not also take up the cross as a pattern for that life. If you call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus, you have taken up the cross as a means of entrance. Into new life. And what Jesus is saying to James and John. And the disciples and to all of us in this text. Is that now I want you to take up the cross. As the pattern for that new life. That I've given you in abundance. Now in closing as we've seen in the past two months. What this means therefore is that following Jesus. Requires everything of us. And challenges the way of life in our world at the most basic level. Because entering the kingdom of God does not entail just a slight deviation from business as usual. Instead it demands a complete reorientation of my life and my priorities and my values. The cross challenges all other systems of power and glory and pride in life that we have come to know. And that we have come to participate in. And the cross makes the way that the world works turn upside down. Which is why we can't just come to the cross of Jesus and give him only a part of our lives. He cuts us deep down to the bone. But he does so to give us life. To give us life. As a surgeon who loves us and makes his cuts with precision and care that we might have fullness of life. And I just want to say this level of seriousness in following Jesus isn't consistent with the way the majority of our Western world thinks about religion today. The cultural historian Jacques Barzun who actually died at age 104 two weeks ago wrote this people blithely speak of someone's or their own religious preference as if it were something like a taste in food Or sports. Preferences can be changed on a whim. Preferences are things that we adopt to enhance the life that we've already chosen to live. Jesus doesn't call you or me to a new religious preference. That serves our pre-existing aims better than whatever we were clinging to before. Quite to the contrary. And so much better. He calls you to a new life that requires you to lay down everything at his feet and to take up your cross and to follow him. May he give us the strength to do so and the awareness of the depth of his love to do so as his people. Amen.